Hello, I'm Andrew, and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 8th of November 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 880 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading for you this week, we have myself, Andrew, Nathan, Angela, Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, Christine, who is also standing in for Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have an update from Beacon, including an update on how you can order your diaries and calendars. For 2024. The quiz with Mina from our regional railway ticket offices remaining open to the ancient practices of bull baiting. We have the latest local news for the black country. With yet more controversy, we have the latest football news for Wolves and West Brom. A did you know section from Flashback Roger, the weather for the week ahead, and we also have a fiery delight for you too. Another bake-along session from Penny Melville Brown, also known as the Blind Baker. Local news to start though with Ian, Christine, but first Angela. A Dudley councillor who was leading a campaign and urging residents to take a stand against proposed railway station ticket office closures has spoken of his delight at the announcement that proposals have been scrapped. Councillor Kieran Casey, who represents Castle and Priory Ward on Dudley Council, said that the news has been welcomed by the residents in his ward who use the local station at Coesley and others who travel down to Starbridge. Under the proposals, ticket offices at Coesley and Starbridge, as well as hundreds of others across the region, would have been closed, leaving residents, and in particular disability groups, angry that this would severely impact accessibility and customer service, making the railways less user-friendly and appealing to use. Councillor Kieran Casey said, It's fantastic news that these proposals have been scrapped, as this would have had a massive impact on those who use the railways every day. Although not located in the ward I represent, many residents from Castle and Priory use Coesley, given this is our main station in the north of the borough, to get to Wolverhampton, Birmingham and further afield, as well as travelling down to Starbridge Station at times. I've seen firsthand the vital work ticket office staff do every single day, all year round. Not just selling tickets, but supporting commuters and the operations at the station more generally. And their work alongside community groups has undoubtedly contributed to the fantastic station we have now. It's vital that our railways are accessible and user-friendly, so I'm extremely happy that the pressure from residents in Dudley, as well as across the region and right up and down the country, has paid off. 
and I'm so grateful to residents who have raised this with me and who signed the petition to oppose these closures. The huge upswell of concern by blind and partially sighted people was unprecedented within the community, as was the overwhelming public opposition to the plans. As well as taking part in the consultation itself, almost 2,000 supporters sent a letter to their MP asking them to share their concerns about this proposal with the Transport Minister, reaching 9 out of 10 MPs. At the same time, hundreds of people wrote to their local newspapers to reiterate RNIB's call to scrap the proposals. Matt Stringer, RNIB Chief Executive, reacting to the news said, We are delighted the voice of blind and partially sighted people has been heard, and the Minister has made this change. It is essential the experiences of people with sight loss are properly understood in decision-making. These closures would have left many blind and partially sighted people unable to live a full life, without a means to see family, go to their health appointments and play their part in their communities. We welcome the Minister's commitment to form a working group with a variety of organisations to ensure a better train travelling experience in the future, with accessible technology and infrastructure improvements at its heart. Now, from the mix of electricity and diesel fuel that powers our trains, to something a lot more sustainable and carbon neutral, as a trial is underway to test whether a fleet of council vehicles could be powered with vegetable oil. City of Wolverhampton Council is looking into using hydro-treated vegetable oil, HVO, to replace diesel, helping it to reduce carbon emissions. Several different types of vehicles are being used in the trial and initial results show they achieve a similar number of miles per gallon. Several local authorities have tested alternative fuels in the last year. Craig Collingswood, the councillor responsible for the environment and climate change said, the initial results of the trial are encouraging. The oil produces 90% lower carbon emissions than traditional diesel fuel and is derived from animal, plant or algae remains, he said. HVO is considered to be a renewable energy, unlike traditional liquid fuels such as fossil petroleum, natural gas and coal. The Wolverhampton Authority has pledged to, to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2028 and has not had to make any adaptions to its vehicles in order to use the vegetable oil. And from horsepower to pedal power, as cyclists have been given the green light to ride down some Wolverhampton roads to their heart's content. Wolverhampton Council has enforced cycle lanes on Darlington Street, Litchfield Street and Queen Square, and the public have five weeks to submit objections to the High Court. Vehicles have been stopped from travelling down certain parts of both roads to give cycles exclusive use of the lanes. Wolverhampton City Council's reason for changing the public realm in favour of cyclists was outlined in the planning permission submission. The council stated the provision for cyclists is considered of high importance, especially to encourage more sustainable methods of travel. The scheme includes for various cycle facilities east to west across the city to promote cycling by improving the connectivity of the city's existing cycle network and to encourage safe cycling and walking. To ensure the changes to the traffic situation in the city centre, there will have to be a ban on parking and unloading on the streets where cycle lanes have been implemented. Next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi, everyone. It's Helen from Beacon. 
back with your weekly update on what is a very wet and windy day when I'm recording this. You might be able to hear the rain in the background. I think you can certainly tell that it's November. As usual, we've got plenty going on in our community activity program though this month. From a festive shopping trip, one of my favourite things to do, to an all-new gym class, there really is something for everyone. You can find out what's going on and how to sign up on our website, www.beaconvision.org, or give us a call on 01902-880-111. Now, calling all small businesses. We have a limited number of stall holder spaces available at our 2023 Santa Run, which will be taking place at West Park in Wolverhampton on Sunday, December the 3rd. We're on the lookout for stall holders who can add that extra festive flair to the event. Whether you're a face painter, a sweet stall holder, or a roof maker, your Christmassy touch will make a festive difference. Please get in touch with our supporter engagement team via email at supportus at beaconvision.org or by calling 01902 to find out more. Now, would you like to be a Beacon VIP? Well, that's our social group for younger people and those living independently with sight loss that meets once a month. In November, they'll be having a go at bell ringing after a festive-themed concert. That sounds a lot of fun. If you'd like to join them, give us a call on 01902-880-111 or email inquiries at beaconvision.org to sign up. Now, last this week, we are finishing with one of my favourite things, a very big thank you. To everyone who went bright for Beacon on our Bright for Sight Day, we just wanted to say the biggest of thank yous. From nurseries and schools to businesses and bucket collections, so many people showed their support and we are delighted to let you know that we've raised a total of £967 to help ensure that no one has to face sight loss alone. Thank you for making a difference. What a nice story to finish on, eh? That's it for this week. I'll be back with another update soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another block of local news. The trust which runs Dudley's Russells Hall Hospital has secured a £16.9 million funding package to expand its emergency department. The Dudley Group NHS Foundation Trust has been successful in its bid to secure the cash which will help transform emergency resus facilities. There will be an enhanced resuscitation space, which health bosses say will revolutionise the care given at the Trust's emergency department. Chief Executive Diane Wake said, The news that we have been successful in our bid to redevelop our emergency resus department has been a huge moment for us here at Dudley. This will have huge benefits not only for our patients and the Black Country community, but also for our staff by improving the facilities. We know that by having an environment fit for purpose, we will deliver an improved patient experience. The resuscitation design includes additional resuscitation facilities with a dedicated paediatric area and isolation rooms to provide appropriate safe care in the event of future pandemics or outbreaks. The department will also have state-of-the-art technology and equipment, including a digital medicine system to improve the storing, usage and prescribing of drugs to patients. Dr Ahmed Ishmael, Consultant and Clinical Director of Urgent and Acute Services said, I am incredibly proud to be a part of this redevelopment opportunity. It's going to have a huge impact with advanced equipment optimised to enhance the way we treat our patients. Our trust truly needs and deserves this. We can also maximise support for our staff with opportunities to have training areas and most importantly, give them a confidence and morale boost with a state-of-the-art environment. The build will begin in 2024 and is expected to take until spring 2025 to complete. 
Health bosses say any disruption to the Trust's emergency department will be kept to a minimum. Two new mental health hospitals are taking shape in the Black Country and are set to create hundreds of new jobs. The new purpose-built emergency mental health inpatient services are being built in Wolverhampton Road, Wolverhampton and Salop Drive, Oldbury and are due to open in mid-2024. The new hospitals, which will be called Signet Hospital Oldbury and Signet Hospital Wolverhampton, will be run by Signet Healthcare and will offer psychiatric intensive care units, PICU, and acute services for adults, with the female services located at Oldbury and the male services at Wolverhampton. The Wolverhampton facility will be a 32-bed hospital, while the Oldbury site will have 27 beds. Work started at both sites earlier this year, and between them, the two new hospitals will bring more than 200 new jobs to the region. Both hospitals will have a full multidisciplinary team and will support the acute needs of adults requiring rapid access to mental health services, including those who may need an intensive care environment. The focus will be on providing personalised care, tailored for each individual's needs, with the aim of supporting them safely on their recovery journey. Facilities at both hospitals will include gardens, ensuite bedrooms, therapy rooms, multi-faith rooms, a gym, treatment rooms, communal lounges, dining rooms, quiet lounges and meeting rooms. Lee Hammond, Signet's Chief Commercial Officer, said 2024 is an important year of organic growth for Signet. As part of this, we are delighted to be extending our care pathways within the Black Country region to offer new PICU acute facilities for adult men and women. With the increase in need for specialist mental health services, we want to be part of the solution and work together with our NHS partners to provide the best treatment and facilities to help people on their recovery journey. The new hospitals will be purpose-built to meet the latest specifications for improving mental health within a therapeutic environment and will ensure that people from the West Midlands can receive the treatment and care they need close to family and friends. Dr. Tony Romero, CEO of Signet Group, said the pandemic had a huge impact on people's mental health and it is anticipated that an extra 500,000 people across the UK will experience mental health difficulties because of COVID-19. It is our priority to ensure those suffering with their mental health get the very best support they need, he said. Signet's new hospitals in the West Midlands will complement the range of mental health services we already deliver in the area, and we are delighted that we will soon be able to support more people who need our help. The current demand nationally is surging, and with that increase in need for specialist mental health services, we want to be part of the solution and work together with the NHS to provide the best treatment and facilities to help people on their recovery journey. The new hospitals will be purpose-built to meet the latest NHS specifications for improving mental health within a therapeutic environment. I look forward to seeing the difference the facilities will make to so many people. The good work of volunteers who ensure pensioners with dementia enjoy visits to Hales Owen's reminiscent community cafe have been recognised. The Mayor of Dudley, Councillor Andrea Goddard, presented Claire and Aaron Cooper a volunteering award at the cafe, which is at Malt Mill Lane Community Lounge. Hales Owen North Councillor Stuart Henley was delighted the cafe's work has been recognised. He said the work that Claire and Aaron do is wonderful. The award they won was the Are You OK Award, nominated through the Dudley CVS Awards. They assist in helping run the Reminiscence Cafe, also the Men's and Women's Mental Health Group. Without locals like these two, many local community groups would not happen. He added, It's more than just a cafe, it's a place to connect with others who understand your journey while enjoying a friendly chat over a comforting cuppa. As Alzheimer's continues to impact our community, our cafe provides a haven where those affected by this illness 
along with their families and caregivers, can come together to share experiences and seek guidance. He added, The cafe isn't just about conversation. It's about creating an enriching experience. We offer entertainment, expert advice from visiting partner groups and more. Aaron and Claire were inspired to work with people with dementia after Claire's mother, who loves the cafe, was diagnosed with dementia herself. Musicians regularly perform at the cafe, including Tom Stanton, whose music helps bring back memories for his audience. Councillor Henley added, We'd like to express our gratitude for our volunteers and musicians. They bring the power of music and give their time to aid those on their journey with dementia. Without these volunteers, many of these essential groups might not even exist. Thank you for your outstanding contributions. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. How many silk poppies were sold on the first poppy day? Question 2. How is the British Legion keeping up with the times? Question 3. What does etiquette say about the leaf on a remembrance poppy? Question 4. Where in the country is the poppy factory? Question 5. In what year was Remembrance Day moved to a Sunday? And finally, question six. Where was the first Armistice Day held? I will be back with you later in the show to answer all your questions. But for now, best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. Hmm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news. October was a mouth-watering month for the black country with numerous eatery establishments winning accolades and awards. Natalie Francis, who owns Doreen's Kitchen in West Bromwich, and Taste from India, based in Briley Hill, both picked up gongs at the Uber Eats Restaurant of the Year Awards. Winning the Female Chef slash Restaurateur of the Year 2023 and Community Impact Award, respectively. With Wombourne Tandoori beating restaurants from all over the country to scoop Best Restaurant in the Curry Life Awards, and family-owned Italian restaurant Fiume on Bridge North Road, Wolverhampton, also achieving the best Italian restaurant, not only for the Midlands, but also in England for the second successive year at the Food Awards England. You could say all's rather Boston in the black country and not just about orange chips or faggots and pays. 
Another pioneering success story of a multi-million pound business born out of a black country kitchen comes in the form of Maxine Laceby, a self-professed, underestimated everyday woman who went to university at 49. Maxine co-founded Absolute Collagen in her 50s after discovering bone broth, simmering chicken feet and pig's trotters in pans at home for hours to make a gelatinous stock which she drank to improve her skin and hair. The 57-year-old who lives in Wolverhampton came from humble beginnings as she was adopted and grew up on a council estate in Bath. After leaving school age 16, she had various jobs, including in a bookbinding factory, and at the age of 25 she gave up work and later had two children. Maxine then became a full-time mother by choice, which she described as an absolute gift, and moved to Wolverhampton, which would become the place where absolute collagen was born. However, it was not until her children had flown the nest and Maxine started studying fine art at university, aged 49, that she discovered the benefits of collagen. And it all started with a project called Dare to Go Bare, which challenged her to remove her makeup, let her hair go grey and embrace her insecurities. I just had these insecure moments where I used to sit on my bed and go, I don't know who I am. I've been a daughter, I've been a mother, who am I? She said. I had to really dive deep into myself and ask, what's going on? Why am I feeding these insecurities? It's only what I look like, who cares? But it was more than that. Maxine then started making and drinking bone broth which made her skin glow and the whites of her eyes really shiny as she believes that collagen was making the difference. Absolute Collagen was launched in 2017 and now, six years later, the company has gone from strength to strength with a current turnover of £25 million. It's all about being your authentic self, bringing you to the party and the courage it takes, Maxine said. If I can help one person just to step into their own skin and not be scared and everything that it takes, that is my mission. Maxine said life was tough growing up, but she believes her upbringing has given her invaluable skills today. She is fearless, solution focused, and she gets stuff done. She explained that she hated school, and since her mother used to work two nights a week to bring in more money, she would often walk the streets all night long, aged 13. She could not wait to leave school and ended up working as a chambermaid in a bookbinding factory and in sales before later giving up work and falling pregnant. From that point on, the mother of two said, everything happened organically, but her journey to discovering collagen did not begin until she started university aged 49. One of my first projects within the first year was called Dare to Go Bare, she explained. It was all about stripping myself bare of makeup, letting my hair go grey, wearing really dowdy clothes. Would I, as a woman of a certain age, disappear in people's vision? I did it for four months and felt desperately insecure, really dowdy, but that was the whole point to find out who I really was. She now has two tattoos, which are notes to self. One says, I'm more than just a body, and the other says, own who you are. I look back and it's about showing up as me, my authentic self, especially in a world where everybody is shown to be anything but their authentic self, she added. Maxine then started making bone broth at home by boiling up bones for hours to make stock, which she drank to improve her skin and hair. After friends noticed she was glowing, they wanted to know her secret and she ended up cooking massive pots of bone broth and handing it out to others. Working with her daughter Darcy, who studied food science, the pair believed collagen 
the most abundant protein in the body, was the magic ingredient, and they realised there was a gap in the market for pure collagen supplements. Thus, Absolute Collagen was launched in 2017, offering a small sachet of liquid containing the right amount of the best form of collagen with vitamin C. Within two years, the company turned over £1 million, followed by £10 million after three and a half years, and now this figure stands at £25 million. However, it has not come without hard work, and Maxine even took the risk of remortgaging her house, selling items and borrowing money from friends in order to self-fund the business. We launched a supplement into a market that didn't exist, having no business experience, having not worked since I was 25. Darcy was fresh out of uni. Nobody believed in us, she said. I look back and that probably went in our favour because we slipped under the radar and just got on with the job in hand. No distractions. With the help of her daughters, the company won Best New Beauty Supplement at the 2019 CEW Awards and launched a skincare range, which Maxine described as phenomenal. Reflecting on her journey now, she said, It's never been about turnover, ever. It's got to be about purpose, the team, and I do feel very blessed. I was thinking this the other day, but both my parents have passed away and I'm adopted, so I don't feel I've got any roots. I think that's probably why being a mother is so important to me. But growing the business, it's almost like absolute collagen is growing the roots. It's all about empowerment. I want people to just be their authentic selves and, as frightening as that is, I think coming out the other side of that is beautiful. Up next in this week's tradition, we have a sweet treat. Written and presented by Penny Meville Brown, who is also known as the Blind Baker. This bake along provides both the recipe and instructions in an entertaining and encouraging manner to bring the joy of home baking to all listeners regardless of their level of sight. Time for something with a little attitude. A ginger biscuit bake along session. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, I'm Penny Melville Brown, the Blind Baker. I won an international prize that allowed me to cook all over the world. I've written up all the recipes, I've made hundreds of videos, I've written a recipe book, and there's lots more about me at www.pennymelvillebrown.com. Today, I've got the very simplest recipe for ginger biscuits. They're incredibly quick to make. They come out nice and crisp from the oven. They get even crisper later on. Um, and this little recipe will make about 12 generous biscuits. To make this, I do it all in one saucepan. And then I've got a baking sheet, which has got just the tiniest bit of butter on it. That's just to hold the parchment paper onto it. And I really want to emphasize how careful you need to be in making sure your parchment paper is the right size for your tray. And I say this because, of course, I don't see and I cook in gas. And if I've got sort of flappy bits of parchment paper over the edge of the tray, there's a real risk that they'll get caught in the flames. And then I've got a burning smell in the kitchen. So, neat parchment paper, that fingertip or so of butter just sticks the parchment to the tray. So, the first ingredients that are really easy go into that saucepan. 50 grams of butter, 50 grams of soft brown sugar, 50 grams of syrup. Gently start heating that. You don't want to boil it, just get it melted so that the butter 
is dissolved and you can feel with a spatula that all the sugar has gently dissolved. You can't feel it crunching on the bottom of the pan. So that's all bubbling away, just at a very small bubble. And into that, I'm going to add 100 grams of self-raising flour and one large teaspoonful of ground ginger. So what we're trying to do is not cook this flour at this time. So the pan should not be too hot when your flour goes in. If necessary, just leave it on the side for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, just to cool down. Then the flour goes in, then the ground ginger, stir it up together. Now, if it's cool enough by then, I would be using my hands to do this, but you could use a spatula instead. And you're just making sure everything is well mixed up together. Then you're going to start dividing that mix into little balls. I do it in half. With each one of those halves, I then split up into six balls. And I'm going to end up on my parchment paper on the baking tray with 12 balls of dough reasonably spread out. I usually try and leave the width of a couple of fingers between each ball. And I'm just going to press the balls down gently with two fingers. And that's not really to spread it. It's just to make sure it's actually stuck to the parchment paper as I pop it into the oven. It's that old famous temperature again, 180 degrees Celsius, gas mark four. I've got the shelf in approximately the middle of the oven. And in goes the tray with the little round biscuits on it. And I'm going to set a timer for 12 minutes. And that's about all you should need. Because these biscuits, as they come out of the oven, they will be hot, too hot to eat. So hold on. But they will be starting to firm up even more as they come out of the oven. And it's a great little biscuit just to share with a friend over a cup of coffee. I hope you enjoy them. I hope you enjoy this recipe. I hope you give it a try. If you've got ideas or suggestions for future recipes, please get in touch with me. You can always make contact through my website, www.pennymelvillebrown.com. And happy baking to all of you too. Bye-bye. TNF Soundings. Up next, let's have another block of local news. It is a slice of ancient journalism that has lost none of its bite, none of its power through the passage of time. It is a crafted, cutting denouncement of the sickening spectacle that was bull-baiting. Recalling childhood memories of a contest at Loppingdon, Shropshire, J. Grice wrote in 1878, The most barbarous act I ever saw. It was a young bull and had little notion of tossing the dogs, which tore the ears and skin of his face in shreds, and his mournful cries were awful. I was up a tree and afraid the world would open and swallow us all up. No one, now or then, could fail to be repulsed by the blood-stained picture painted by Grice. By the time he penned the piece, the blood sport had been banned, outlawed by the 1835 Cruelty to Animals Act. In reality, long before the act was introduced, spectators had seen baiting in its true horrific light and walked away. Many towns and cities had already barred gatherings, using the 1822 Act to prevent the cruel and improper treatment of cattle to prosecute organisers, even though bulls were not covered by the legislation. The Aris Birmingham Gazette of November 19, 1827 reported, Joseph Hughes and John Hill, miners, Joseph Hancock's bricklayer, Robert Mountain, labourer, Samuel Millward, nailer, all of West Bromwich, were convicted in the penalty of £5 each under the statute to prevent the cruel and improper treatment of cattle for baiting a bull in West Bromwich on Monday the 5th instance. In default of payment, all three have been committed to the House of Correction in Stafford for three months each. Yet, in the 17th and 18th century, it was wildly popular. Hundreds would gather to watch a terrified, tethered animal set upon by dog after dog, pepper first blown up its nostrils to increase the animal's agitation. 
As incongruous as it seems today when Punch and Judy shows are denounced as too violent, children who visited carnivals and wakes 350 years ago witnessed wide-eyed bull and bear baiting. Mere misguided entertainment was not the only driving force behind bull baiting's rise. It was believed the snarling dogs tenderised meat that would later be served. And it was very much a West Midlands sport. Our region was the heaving hub of bull baits. We owned it. It is our segment of guilty history. It was the chosen leisure activity of pit workers, a tough fighting breed who brought crowd violence to contests. The Stafford Advertiser of October 12, 1822 stated, The Staffordshire Colliers, who are the chief performers at the stake, are, generally speaking, a harmless, hard-working race of people. Numbers of them travel to a wake or fair with the purpose of having a set to. As soon as the ale begins to operate, they show the greatest anxiety for a fight. It is not an uncommon thing to see Bilston or Wensbury Colliers knocked down a dozen times on the pavement, without apparent injury. So hard are they by nature. The signs remained around you. Sedgley's bullring, Birmingham's bullring, Ludlow's bullring. All arenas for the stomach-churning entertainment. In fact, stray old English bulldogs simply let loose after their baiting days were done at one point posed such a menace on the streets of Bilston, civic leaders ordered all strays to be shot on sight. Tettenhall was an important bull-baiting base, and in 1815, the authorities were moved to issue a public warning. Anyone attempting to unveil it at the annual wakes would be prosecuted. Legislation drove what was left of the sport underground. It took place in Oakengates a year after the ban documents show. Record books tell of human casualties. Bilston Workhouse Register of 1801 reveals James Harvey was carried into the building after breaking his leg while bull baiting. A year later, Thomas Phillips suffered the same fate through the same pursuit in Willenhall. Also in 1802, William Morris died at the workhouse after taking part in a bull bait. In 1807, William Jones was treated for a dislocated shoulder. Revelers at Bilston Wakes, 1818, witnessed a Wolverhampton man being gored to death. This region evidently paid a painful price for its love of animal torture, and the cost was not only measured in deep gashes and broken bones. There was a steep rise in rustling as unscrupulous sportsmen swiped bulls for the forthcoming fights. The last statutory case of bull-stealing for baiting took place in Bilston and involved a Darleston thief. Queen Elizabeth I was the unashamed early public relations patron of bull-baiting. She sold it to the masses. The monarch loved it, simply couldn't get enough of it. So much so, she demanded it to be included in Coventry's Hock Day celebrations, a shindig for tenant farmers. On May 25, 1559, Elizabeth declared a civic reception for the French ambassador and his entourage should conclude with a spot of bull-baiting. That's akin to King Charles taking Emmanuel Macron to a dogfight. By the early 1800s, public opinion was turning against the pursuit. The press certainly wanted it banished. When it was placed on the entertainment list for the 1832 wait in Bilston, the Stafford Advertiser decided enough was enough. In a distant echo of Covid's recent spread across the nation, the Advertiser blamed the event for sparking a cholera epidemic. On September 1st, it informed readers, cholera has made and is still making dreadful havoc in the neighbourhood of Rowley, Tiverdale, Tipton and Bilston. Most especially are the two last mentioned places visited by it. The dreadful visitation was not known in Bilston prior to their late wake and towards the close of the week, which was devoted to the awful practice of bull baiting. 
drunkenness, debauchery and general dissipation connected with such seasons. The cholera broke out at first entirely among those persons who had given themselves to the practices of the Wake Week. Rowley Regis Wake in the same summer was marred by one landowner's decision to tether a bull in his field and allow visitors to test their dogs against the beast for a price. This was beyond the pale for even a public who saw baiting as showbiz. On Monday alone, the advertiser reported, 26 dogs were counted, brought by the lowest rabble from Birmingham, Warsaw, Wensbury, etc., for the purpose of worrying this poor animal, and on Wednesday, instead of employing a butcher to put an end to the creature's suffering, his rapacious owner sold him to some fellows from Briley Hill to undergo similar tortures at the wake there. The paper's fury is understandable and justified. We know bull baiting took place for the last time in Litchfield in 1822. The Litchfield Mercury report of the event published on May 30th that year, reveals in graphic detail why residents no longer wanted its shadow on their streets. The bull was brought from Faisley on the fair day and brought to the Green Hill Wake at Litchfield. It was there beaten by four men, two of whom were subsequently imprisoned for their part in the proceedings. The bull being tied to a stake, a dog was let loose on it. To support the animal in its suffering, we suppose, it was given a quart of ale and it then broke away from the stake, causing much commotion and dismay among the crowd. The bull was recaptured in Rotten Row, brought back to the stake and beaten again. It was then taken to Rushall, about eight miles from Litchfield, and again beaten there. It being placed in a stable, the wretched creature went mad and killed two dogs and was finally put out of its misery. In 1666, Samuel Pepys wrote, With my wife and Mercer to the bear garden where I have not been, I think for many years, and saw some good sport of the bulls tossing the dogs, one into the very boxes. But it is a very rude and nasty pleasure. That it was, and unspeakably cruel. Sadly, our region appears to have been the last to realise that. Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Take it away, Roger. Hello, everyone. Christine here, standing in for Roger, who's not been too well this week but still managed to put together a Did You Know feature for us all. So thank you so much, Roger, and get well soon. Here we go. I hope that you are all okay and that you remembered to change your clocks, unlike yours truly, who forgot and got up earlier than everyone else. Anyway, this week, I found out a bit of detail about remembrance, as it's that time of year again. So, did you know that... The Royal British Legion formed in 1921 and ordered 9 million silk versions of the flowers, which were sold on November the 11th that year. It was the first ever poppy appeal, which raised £106,000, a significant amount of money for the time, and works out to be over £5.3 million today. On average, the poppy appeal raises £50 million annually, mostly in cash, but the British Legion is trying to keep up with the times and has asked the public to donate online or by using contactless payments where it's available or when offered. If you wear a poppy, it really doesn't matter if you wear it on the right or the left. However, etiquette has it that the leaf should be set at the 11 o'clock position to signify the hour that the guns of World War I fell silent. 
The poppy factory is situated in Richmond, Surrey, and is manned by disabled military veterans, as it has been since its creation in 1921 in London and since 1926 in Richmond. Each year, over 11 million poppies are made, 135,000 wreaths, and 1.1 million remembrance symbols. The British Legion provides every sort of support to ex-service personnel, from employment to housing and counselling for any aspect of help needed. Originally, Poppy Day was called Armistice Day and was always on 11th of November, the day World War I ceased. In Britain, beginning in 1939, the two-minute silence was moved to the Sunday nearest to the 11th of November in order not to interfere with wartime production should the 11th of November fall on a weekday, and so this became Remembrance Sunday. The first Armistice Day was held at Buckingham Palace on 10th of November 1919, commencing with King George V hosting a banquet in honour of the President of the French Republic. The first official Armistice Day events were subsequently held in the grounds of Buckingham Palace on the morning of 11th of November 1919, which included the first two-minute silence as a mark of respect. Well then, whatever the day is called, it's a fairly solemn time, but nevertheless a very important date for all of us to bear in mind, I think. It always makes me remember when I was 10 and I stood with my scout troop with cold drizzle on me little legs for the service at the War Memorial and wishing that I was somewhere warm. Any road up, I'm off now and just say bye for now. So till next week. Now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain much the same, with some sunny intervals but plenty of showers too. Temperatures are forecast to continue to feel like autumn. UV levels are expected to remain low. The sunrise and sunset times are 7.30am for the sunrise and 4.15pm for the sunset. Friday 10th of November is forecast to be wet and breezy with spells of light rain and a moderate breeze. Temperatures are expected to drop to 9 degrees and may even be as low as 3 degrees overnight. Moving on and unfortunately the spell of rain looks set to hang over the region for the weekend. With a gentle breeze temperatures will remain cool at 10 degrees on both Saturday and Sunday with Saturday looking like it may be relatively dry with a better chance of some sunny intervals. On to next week where the spell of Unsettled weather will continue to dominate once again, with plenty of sharp showers to look out for. It is forecast for rain to remain in the region on Monday 13th of November and continue right through to Thursday 16th of November. With a gentle breeze, temperatures should continue to hold up at around 11 degrees. The showers are forecast to be persistent throughout the week but there's a chance of some brief sunny intervals breaking through at times. So, there we have it, another mixed bag of sunshine and showers for this week. As always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on.
Wolves suffered late heartbreak as another controversial penalty handed struggling Sheffield United a 99th minute winner and their first win of the season. Early on, Wolves silenced the rowdy crowd at Bramall Lane with their forward passages of play. The visitors dominated the early exchanges and created several openings without truly testing the home team's goal. Wolves continued to be in control. With the hosts allowing them sustained possession, the onus was on Wolves to create clear-cut opportunities. And when they did, they fluffed their lines, big style, as the blades held firm. Wolves closed the half dominating and toying with their opponents, but without the inform Pedro Neto they lacked any cutting edge and failed to find the opening goal as they entered half-time drawing nil-nil. And they would come to rue their missed opportunities as momentum swung in United's favour right from the get-go of the second half, as Wolves struggled to keep the ball and keep the hosts at bay. This really was a game of two halves. In the 72nd minute, Wolves were eventually punished for their poor defending and lack of control over the game when United took the lead. A ricochet put former Villa forward Cameron Archer through on goal and his shot from distance crashed in off the underside of the bar with what seemed like the winner. But in the 89th minute, one of Gary O'Neill's tactical changes paid off. The ball fell to substitute Jean Rickner Bellegarde inside the box and his shot took a deflection before finding the top corner. Surely the summer signing's first goal for Wolves was enough to salvage a point for Wolves. Unfortunately, and controversially not. In a frantic six minutes of added time, both sides pushed for a winner. And then in the 97th minute, referee Rob Jones pointed to the spot claiming substitute Fabio Silva had caught George Baldock. In a decision similar to the controversial one given against Wolves the weekend before, VAR took a long time deliberating before giving the spot kick and giving Sheffield United a late winner. Wolves boss Gary O'Neill was clearly left bewildered after the final whistle as he urged the officials to not make fixtures about them in the wake of another terrible decision against Wolves. Despite an independent panel agreeing the decision against Newcastle the week before was the wrong one, Wolves did not receive an apology and O'Neill is adamant he will not seek one this week. I've said a million times now we need to be better so that they, the decisions, don't affect us as much. But the facts are they've had a big impact on our points total and an impact on where we are in the league and on the feel of the place. 12 points is a big difference to 18, so the impact that these decisions are having is big. Fabio Silva was left in tears after the game, in what was his first minutes for almost a month. But O'Neill says the club will rally around the young striker. He said he was obviously very upset. I think everyone could see how upset he was at the end. And he has my full support. Obviously no one makes mistakes or goes on to do things that don't go well on purpose, so he has my full support. But that defeat today is on me and the whole group, not on Fabio. We need to be better. We take that together. Over at the Hawthorns, and it was much more plain sailing for the Baggies, as Inform Albion made it three wins in a row by putting Hull to the sword. Hull, who were level on points heading to Albion, were powerless as Carlos Corberan's men clicked through the gears thanks to a Grady Diangana match-winning second-half masterclass. Albion looked sharp from the first few minutes as Wallace saw a shot easily blocked outside the box. Liam Rossini's side responded well and were tidy with the ball but were the architects of their own downfall on 14 minutes. Playing out from the back, an errant pass found its way to Baggy's forward Wallace, who was in acres of space. The captain had time to compose himself and curl a low finish into the bottom right corner from 20 yards. It was calamity from the Tigers and a gift for Albion. Albion tails were up and Corberan's men looked dangerous. 
Perhaps it all became a little too easy as a complacent Albion struggled to keep hold of the ball or produce any meaningful passages of play, and Hull made them pay four minutes before the break. Finding an equaliser with a well-dispatched first-time volley across goalkeeper Alex Palmer. The heavens well and truly opened at half-time to make for testing conditions. But the slick zip on the pitch seemed to be to Albion's liking, as the hosts improved with the ball after the break and carried more of a threat. Not long into the second half, the hosts constructed one of their finest team goals in recent memory. Okai Yokuzlu, Kipre, Mowat and Wallace were all involved. The latter released Diangana on the right, who had the presence of mind to square for Phillips. His low finish into the corner was cool and calculated and inch perfect. The Hawthorns erupted and it was louder still six minutes later as some more brilliance and wonderful footwork from Diangana bamboozled his defender and crafted enough space to deliver a low cross for Ajayi to lift in and put the game beyond doubt as Albion wrapped up a strong victory. After the game, head coach Carlos Corbran praised Grady Diangana for playing a starring role in the second half and grasping his opportunity in the Albion attack since his return to fitness. Corbran told the Express and Star, Diangana is one very special player. When he commits with the situation, he is one player that can make a difference in the championship. We are very pleased to see him scoring goals like last week, the previous week, and giving an assist. It's very important that the players in attack impact and produce, and now he is finding a way to do this. The Baggies consolidated fifth in the championship and head to Southampton in fourth on Saturday before the November international break. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question 1. How many silky poppies were sold on the first poppy day? And the answer here is 9 million. Question 2. How is the British Legion keeping up with the times? And the answer here is by accepting contactless payments. Question 3. What does the etiquette say about the leaf on a remembrance poppy? And the answer, it should be placed at the 11 o'clock position behind the flower. Question 4. Where in the country is the poppy factory? And the answer here is Richmond, Surrey. And question five, in what year was Remembrance Day moved to a Sunday? And the answer here is 1939. And finally, question six, where was the first Armistice Day held? And the answer here is Buckingham Palace. Did you get them all right? I'm sure you did. If not, though, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now. Cheers for those, Mina. Up now is another Beacon update. Well, I guess it's that time of year again where you may be thinking about next year's diaries and calendars. So good news, Beacon are now taking orders for 2024 large print diaries and calendars. The diaries range from pocket or A6 in size and go up to A4. There is even a jumbo diary with more pages offering even more room. They have big and bold text making it easy to see. 
The 2024 calendars are also available now. The calendars are available in two orientations, Portrait A3 or Landscape A3, which is the shorter but wider of the two. If you would like a large print diary or calendar for 2024, Beacon are now taking orders. So give us a call on 01902-880-111 and ask to speak to a site loss advisor. That's 01902-880-111 to order yours now. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV46AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!